Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Transforming Cervical Cancer Screening and Management, New Guidelines, New Tests, a Case-Based Discussion, is provided by Omnia Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So I recently encountered a patient in my clinical practice, a 40-year-old healthy G3P2 patient with a history of normal cytology over a lifetime, but also never underwent HPV testing and undergoes recent primary HPV screening. And she's noted to be high-risk HPV positive, but is negative for type 16 and 18. And the question I have is what triage strategies should be considered in this setting? And so this is CME and ReachMD, and my name is Dr. Warner Huff. And I'm Dr. Lee Cantrell. And I'm Dr. Mark Stoller. So I think this case really highlights some really important points about where we are with cervical cancer screening. And beginning with you, Dr. Stoller, I thought maybe we can talk about what this means. Well, the issue of what does it mean to be HPV positive and then specifically for a genotype that's not 16, 18, really many people know that 99.7% of all cervical cancers are due to high-risk HPV particularly squamous cell carcinomas are due to high-risk HPV DNA at that very high level. And 70% of the squamous cancers are due to HPV 16 and 18. If you look at adenocarcinomas, which make up about 15 to 20% of the cancers in the screen population, 16, 18, and type 45 account for almost 95% of carcinomas. And as you alluded to in the history This woman was screened primarily with cytology in the United States today. We still have three different screening systems, if you will. Many patients, particularly those in the underserved populations, still get cervical cytology. And we know, of course, that pap smear cytology is responsible for a 70 to 90% reduction in cervical cancer prevalence over the last 30 or 40 years. But as we screen more and more, it becomes harder and harder to detect the less obvious cancers. And that cytology now is under some criticism because it's not sensitive for the carcinomas and the precancers that we need to find to prevent the development of cancer. Because of this, over 20 years ago, we started introducing in the U.S. the concept of co-testing. And I would say most patients who are insured or have good medical care in the U.S. are getting co-testing, meaning they're getting a PAP and a clinically validated HPV test. Some tests give you genotypic information like 16 and 18. Others do not. Since 2014, we've also had primary HPV testing available in the U.S. And while this has been available for over eight years in the U.S. as an FDA-approved algorithm that's progressively but rather slowly being adopted in the U.S. and the rest of the world, where co-testing really never took hold, many countries, England, Australia, Canada, many European countries in Scandinavia have skipped the co-testing step have gone right to primary HPV testing. And the reason for that is that if I had to show you one image regarding a comparison between cytology and co-testing, it would be this study from Ronco where they pooled results of four large randomized controlled trials involving almost 175,000 women. And what these show is that cytology is substantially less sensitive than HPV testing, something we've known for a very long time. In fact, over eight years, primary HPV testing will 
had 60 to 70% protection relative to cytology in terms of cancer detection. Meaning, if you get tested with a primary HPV test, you're going to find that cancer earlier and not have it develop over time because the cancer or the precancer that will lead to that cancer is going to be detected and eradicated. So, Dr. Cantrell, I thought maybe you might want to comment on the various societies that have cervical cancer screening recommendations and maybe some of the differences as well. There are different guidelines. You know, there's the American Cancer Society, the American Society for Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology, the American College of OBGYN, the U.S. Preventative Task Force Guidelines, and all of those are slightly different. You know, we've all decided that starting to screen at age 21, maybe adding HPV at 25, but there are differences between these that are nuanced. The American Cancer Societies are the only ones that currently say that HPV screening should be the primary screening method and should start at 25 and proceed to age 65. And, you know, I think for practitioners who may be oncologists, it can be confusing to know what is the best thing to do for their patients. And we know that there's been increased incidence in women who are younger in their early 30s that are starting to have more cervical cancers. And I think that those trends are concerning. They pick a recommendation to follow and then it can be difficult for them. No, I totally agree. And I think one of the challenges that we face, particularly in the United States, despite the science and despite the progress of our and understanding of the natural history of cervical cancer and its precursors is that clinicians are really still pretty unclear and inconsistent on how to use these guidelines and how to best incorporate them into their clinical practice. And at least in the U.S., we have a long, long way to go. So, Warren, I'd like to make a comment if I could. Sure. So, you know, as Lee was mentioning, you know, the incidence of cancer in younger women in their 30s seems to be increasing, particularly in the last few years when nobody was being screened. And it's in those women, you know, the recent data from, for instance, the Athena trial and the other HPV validation trials have shown that surprisingly in younger women, cytology doesn't perform as well as we expected. And so the added sensitivity of HPV is critical in that young age group, just like it is in older women, to finding the precancers that we need to eradicate. I think that's an excellent point. So one of the things I want to get into, and again, I'll have you comment on this further, Dr. Cantrell, is about the ACS guidelines and how they're uniquely different. And I know that you mentioned about primary HIV testing. And so for the listeners, I thought it might be helpful about what exactly that means. So when we say primary HIV screening or testing, for you to comment exactly what that means as it stands today. It's not available everywhere in the United States currently. And that means that the only screening test that a woman gets is HPV. And if she has HPV present and if there's any type, you know, what the type is. And the ACS guidelines recommend that that start at age 25 and continue on to age 65. There are other options for locations that don't have primary HPV testing. And that would be to do a PAP every three years or a PAP and HPV co-testing every five years. And so I think because it is not equivalent across the country, it makes it very difficult for practitioners to know exactly what to do. And for some of them, HPV testing alone is just not an option. 
So Dr. Stoller, I know you're highly familiar with the Athena trial. I thought you might want to comment on how the Athena trial formed our current understanding of the value of primary HPV screening. Well, Athena was the FDA registration trial for the COBOS HPV test, which is one of two, I mean, it's a moving target to FDA-approved tests for primary HPV screening. But Athena was for the COBOS test. And what we learned in Athena, a very large trial of over 40,000 individuals, is how much better primary HPV is than cytology alone. And even co-testing, which is statistically indistinguishable from co-testing. So the ACS guideline in 2020, which Lee alluded to, caused a lot of consternation, not because they recommended primary HPV as the preferred method going forward, but they also gave a warning, which was very unusual in a guideline document to say, well, the next iteration of these guidelines, which will come out in the next couple of years, there aren't going to be these other options. We want people to do primary HPV because we think the data is overwhelmingly in favor of doing this as the best medicine for women. Now, those issues that Lee mentioned Namely, you know, the availability of primary HPV. Not every clinician knows which HPV test their lab does, and only two of the four currently available tests are approved for primary HPV screening. And so, yeah, we have a lot of transitioning to do to, in essence, follow what's going on in a lot of countries outside of the U.S. who've also come to the same conclusion as the American Cancer Society. You hit on a great point, Dr. Stoller, which is that I was quite surprised at how kind of stern the recommendation was in the American Cancer Society guidelines, and that in the past, our guidelines have generally been inclusive of multiple different options, being cognizant that not all labs, clinics, health systems were able to accommodate modern types of screening. But like you said, the data is so compelling and so overwhelming that they're essentially doubling down on this. And they're basically going with the science, like you said, like not just in the U.S., it's also consistent with many parts of the world. The other point is, is that this shouldn't come as a surprise. So the ACS published a guideline in 2012, which was two years before the FDA approval, even though Athena was mostly done and analyzed, that it's this problem of guidelines not being able to reference things that aren't published. But if you read that very long document in 2012, all these guidelines are kind of long, you see that they're already saying we think primary HPV is going to be the way to go. It just wasn't FDA approved and generally available. So it's not a surprise if you've followed this. Not everybody follows these things day in, day out like we do. But, you know, this is a process that's 10 years old and continuing to evolve. Yeah, you're spot on. So for those tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. My name is Dr. Ha, and I'm here today with Dr. Stoller and Dr. Cantrell. And we're just about to dive deeper into the cervical cancer screening guidelines and distill this into truly practical clinical pearls for our audience. So on the topic of guidelines and screening guidelines going outside of the American Cancer Society screening guidelines, You know, we fully anticipate that the United States Preventive Services Task Force will be updating and releasing their guidelines in the near future. So I'm going to go to you, Dr. Cantrell. What do you think that this will ultimately mean to providers when they do release their guidelines? 
You know, I think we're all anticipating that they will shift just like the American Cancer Society guidelines and be primarily HPV-based for screening. And, you know, I think we all have realized that that is the best way to determine a patient's risk of developing cancer. And of course, that's what we're trying to avoid. Dr. Stoller made a comment earlier about the 2012 guidelines But I think the best part about the 2012 screening guidelines from at least the task force as well as American Cancer Society is there was this incredible harmonization between the guidelines. Right. That they were, for the most part, extremely consistent with one another. Right. And we didn't have this confusion about whose guidelines to use. Right. Now we live in a world where ACS says one thing and the task force says another thing. And so. Right. Um, do you guys feel that they will be, will return to that level of harmonization when the task force comes out with their recommendations? I certainly hope so. <laughs> you know, I think for providers, it's really confusing and even more so for their patients. No one wants their patient to get cancer and they only want to provide the best care. And so I think really understanding how primary HPV-based screening is better than passengers alone or co-testing is really important. And that if people can understand that and then explain it to their patients, I think it would just be so nice for everything to be in harmony. My question is about the harmonization and the fact that will we get to a point that they'll be harmonized again? We certainly hope that the guidelines will be harmonized because for providers to know how best to screen their patients and to be able to explain to patients that everyone who all the societies agree that this is the best way to screen is certainly much easier for everyone to understand. And it it just seems that the data is pointing to risk-based screening with HPV testing alone. Dr. Stiller, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm all in favor of harmonization. And it should come to pass, I would hope, because we're all operating off the same, you know, today incredible databases where we have two, three, four trials with hundreds of thousands of individuals. I mean, we're talking levels of evidence that never existed before when we used to make recommendations about annual PAPs, which was good for its time, but obviously over-screening and led to some harm. So I think harmonization will come to pass and people should realize that there's an incredible amount of work that goes into these guideline processes and that the decision process, at least for the American Cancer Society, where I've been most closely involved, is really driven by what is the best balance between the good of screening versus the harms of screening. And that drives the guideline. I think you guys make great salient points on this topic. And one thing I will say is I still think there's a fair percentage of women in this country that are still getting annual pap smears. And I think when the recommendations come out, you know, we'll be stepping even further away from A, doing annual cytology, but B, just doing cytology in general. And you both have mentioned that the data is so compelling, but I think for our listeners, I think it's important for them to understand that cytology is just clearly an inferior test compared to HPV testing in this day and age. And there's very little reason why you should be using cytology to screen your patients at this point. The other thing I want to just talk about, and I know our listeners have this question is, how do we manage women that have a positive HPV test? 
And how do we manage women that have specific genotyping, like type 16, type 18, type 45? And, you know, the ASCCP back in 2019 published its basically management of abnormalities guidelines, which is really a risk-based assessment. And so for those of our listeners that are familiar with our previous ASCCP guidelines, they were very much algorithmically driven. So you had a result and you went down the algorithm and you saw the recommendation. Now our recommendations are based on a calculation of risk. And that risk then dictates that you do really one of five things. We've kept it very simple. One is treatment, two is culpo, three is come back in one year, come back in three years, or come back in five years. And that's all distilled based on a calculated risk on the combination of their testing results and often their biopsy results. And so for our audience, just to recognize that the management schema is very, very different than it was over the last 15 plus years. It also allows us to add new tests like extended genotyping, genotyping beyond 16, type 18 and type 45. And the question I'm about to ask Dr. Stoller about the value of dual staining and how we plug that in to the algorithm. So I think for our listeners, it's really important to understand like how you utilize this information. And there is a resource that allows you to figure out how to best triage these patients that have a positive HIV test. And so to that point, Dr. Stoller, I thought maybe you might want to talk about what dual staining is, how it fits in primary HIV screening, and better yet, maybe to use this case study that I discussed in the very beginning as an example. Let's go back to when we're talking about primary HPV. We know from these big trials that in the United States today, if you screen with a politically valid primary HPV test, you know, every place will be a little different. But let's say 10 to 15% of women will be positive. We can't take all those women to Culpo because only 1% of women screened with a positive test have CIN3 or cancer. So we need to triage those patients. And in the current guideline, the triage test is cytology. If you have a type other than 16 or 18, you use cytology. If the cytology is abnormal at any level, you take the patient to colposcopy. We take everybody with 16 and 18 to colpo because their risk, for instance, in the Athena trial, one of the remarkable results that Dr. Ha published was that, you know, a woman 27 years old with a normal pap smear who would have been told, oh, you're normal, you're fine. If they're HPV-16 positive, they have a 10% cross-sectional risk of having CIN3 and a 25% risk in three years. So it's those kinds of data that force the need for triage. And just like we think primary HPV is a better triage, we now have very large data, including FDA approvals, that show that there's a better triage test than cytology, just like a primary HPV is better than cytology for the screening test. Extended genotyping and dual state are better than cytology for the triage test by a significant amount. So how does that work? Well, dual stain refers to using immunohistochemistry on the cytology slide, on a liquid-based cytology slide, to look for two markers that by themselves are never co-expressed unless you have neoplastically transformed cells. So if there one cell on these slides in an HPV-positive woman is dual stain positive, that's sufficient to say she has a very significant risk for having a high-grade lesion on colposcopy, needs to go to colposcopy. 
Extended genotyping speaks to the fact that, again, this has been recently FDA approved as well, that we now know that the 12 other genotypes aren't equal in their risk profiles. There are some that are so rare, still they cause a tiny fraction of cancers, but it's so rare that you can put those patients into the one-year or three-year follow-up category. Whereas other types, the ASCCP guidelines really talk about the concept of equal management for equal risk. So if type 31, for instance, or type 33 have risk profiles that are the same or greater than HPV 18, which happens to be what the data show, well, if you're going to take 18 to colposcopy, why wouldn't you take 31 or 33 to colposcopy? So we look at the example, the case study that Warner presented in the beginning. The woman has had all these normal pap smears, but now has had an HPV test, and it's not 16 or 18. Currently, we have three strategies. We can do a cytology and look and see if it's abnormal. And if it's abnormal, take her to colposcopy. And if it's normal, bring her back in one year. We could do extended genotyping if our test allows for extended genotyping, as one of the two FDA-approved examples does. And depending upon the type, you may cross those various thresholds of COPO three-year, one-year, three-year, five-year returns, and mostly one-year return. Or you can do dual stain, where we know that the positive predictive value of dual stain is so high, approximately 25% more sensitive than cytology in this situation, that can raise your risk to the level of certainly COPO referral if it's positive and potentially even to the consideration if the risk is above 25% to considering therapy, depending upon how the patient might be followed up. So the final point would be that we have now data-driven decisions available to us that stratify risk in a way that is superior for the HPV-positive woman compared to cytology alone. And so I think you're going to see an evolution of the triage guidelines, just like the screening guidelines. I think that's a great response. And again, this is about optimizing disease detection at the end of the day. And I'm glad you brought up the whole concept of equal management for equal risk as it relates to the guidelines, because this is another example of how that concept can be played out clinically and be of value to the provider. Well, anyway, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. But before we wrap up, Dr. Cantrell and Dr. Stoller, do you have one take-home message that you'd like to share with our audience? And before I ask you, I'll just share mine. And I'll go first. I guess my take-home message for the audience is to recognize the value of a negative HPV test. And I think we've talked a lot about positives. And I'm going to let Dr. Cantrell and Dr. Stoller do that maybe. But the negative test is so powerfully important for women. And I think that we would all agree that we would love to be able to tell a woman that they have a negative test. And that is truly predictive of a very small risk of developing a cervical cancer precursor or even cervical cancer. And in my opinion, that's exactly what a negative HPV test provides. So I'll go to you, Dr. Cantrell, next, if you could just kind of share your take-home message for the audience. I train residents and do board exams. And across the country, people are struggling with what do we do? And I think I would just encourage people to stay up to date with understanding what it means to do primary HPV screening and what dual staining is going to mean and to really understand it so that they can offer it to their patients because it just offers such a better and more precise 
way to prevent cancers. And that's what we all want to do and to catch things before they turn into a cancer. So I think that's what's exciting about the future. I think we're going to just be in a much better place a few years from now. Dr. Stoller? Well, part of my take-home message bears re-emphasizing was part of Dr. Huzz. You know, if you're going to have a woman and you're going to screen her, let's screen her with the most data-driven optimal test we know of. And a negative HPV is significantly more reassuring than a negative pap smear. If you're HPV positive, if you're the 10 to 15% of women who are HPV positive, risk stratification is the name of the game in all of these guidelines. And now we have biologically based marker-driven risk stratification that in substantial clinical trials has been shown to be superior to morphology alone in calculating that risk. I love both your responses. They're spot on and so accurate. But unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. And so I want to thank our audience for listening in. And obviously, thank you, Dr. Cantrell and Dr. Stoller for joining me today and for sharing all of your valuable insights and expertise on this topic. It was fantastic speaking with the both of you today. Thanks, Warner. Yes, thanks, Warner. It's a pleasure as always. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for listening.